Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, what is going on with you tonight, my brother? I've got a game for us to play, Matt. Okay. I'm going to read you a quote, and I'm going to ask you to give me the name of the speaker, and I'll tell you this. He's relevant tonight, and he's been mentioned on the show before. Okay, now do bear with me. I, as was just saying to you off mic, literally just touched down in Philadelphia after four days at a conference an hour and a half ago. So my brain yeah. is kind of fuzzy. Yeah, but yeah. Let, let, let's see what I can do. And here's the quote. Tragedy can strike in an instant, but film is immortal. Vic lives forever. Just before the last take, Vic took me aside to thank me for the opportunity to play this role. Hmm. Again, has been mentioned on the show before and is relevant tonight. Vic took me aside. Just uh, here, here, I'll read it again. Tragedy can strike in an instant, but film is immortal. Vic lives forever. Just before the last take, Vic took me aside to thank me for the opportunity to play this role. Okay. Oh, fuck. <laughs> you got it? Landis. Yeah. Yeah. So, so here's how I got to this. I, I'm a big fan of the podcast Knowledge Fight, which has been receiving some more attention because uh, Alex Jones and their work on Alex Jones has been in the news. Uh, an associated podcast in terms of people who do research into awful people is Behind the Bastards. Behind the Bastards is one of the favorite podcasts of one of my game night buddies. Ah, he, he's well, telling uh, me I need to listen to it and it is on the, it is on the list. Yeah, so any asshole that you love that you love to hate is probably going to be on there. I scrolled around, found John Landis, and learned that John Landis said that at Vic Morrow's funeral. What? Yeah, he insisted upon giving a eulogy, and he said that shit. Okay, okay, he's saying it to begin with is tactless. Saying it at his funeral <laughs> who Hell nobody asked you to no. speak at that's the balls the big friggin brass ones yeah i i couldn't find like a, a transcript of the podcast so i happened to, to find this quote on um on a uh on an interview that landis gave an exclusive interview at blu-ray.com so you know Everybody's beating down John Landis's door these days. Um, and, and this is in the comments. And of course, people are fighting in the comments. Like, this is some dumb interview about three amigos or some shit. And they're like, um, hey, you know, John, you remember that time that John Landis killed three people? And you got people in the comments who are like, well, gee, why can't we talk about the movies who John Landis didn't kill three people in? Which, you know, one of them is mentioned tonight, Animal House. I'm a... Big fan of American Werewolf in London. I Big. fucking love Blues Brothers. Yeah, he made some really good films. But at the same time, you do have to take into consideration Kill the Man. Uh, and Two Children. Yes. Can't forget about the kids. And, of course, his greatest sin for the purposes of this show, wrote the foreword for Batman and Superman versus Vampires and Werewolves. Yes, he did. And spawned Max Landis, which is a problem in its own right. God, what just, what an abomination unto the Lord. For now, on to be, uh, better things. This week, uh, it's a, a very special celebration on a few fronts. One, we're at episode 52, which, you know, hey, significant number in DC lore. But more importantly, this- Oh, is, is it time to, for a reboot? Are we going to, like, change everything? More significantly- this episode is dropping within a fortnight of the 30th anniversary of the debut of Batman the Animated Series, which to me... Oh, is, we're so old. Uh, which is, to me, the platonic ideal of what Batman should be. 
And we are dropping within the week of the 30th anniversary of the first appearance of the most notable addition to the Bat Cannon from Batman the Animated Series, Harley Quinn. Oh, I so, thought for sure you were going to say Renee Montoya. I'm going to get get some, probably some hate here. Love Harley. If I had to choose between them, I really love Montoya. I, th- I think Montoya is probably my favorite character from Batman the Animated Series, which is not a slight on Harley. Harley is a great character. I really love Montoya. I love the progression that Montoya has had as a character over the years. But we're going to get into the progression that Harley has made as a character over the years in this episode as well. But yeah, so this week, it's three Harley Quinn stories. We're starting with Batgirl Day One. This is Batman Adventures Volume One, Number 12. The writer is Kelly Puckett. The penciler is Mike Parabek. The inks are Rick Burchett. Colors by Rick Taylor. Letters by Tim Harkins. And edited by Scott Peterson and Darren Vincenzo. The cover date is 1993. Barbara Gordon goes to a costume party, dressing as a proto-Batgirl, only to run afoul of Harley and Ivy and another mysterious foe. This is Harley Quinn's first appearance in comics. She had appeared on the animated series, and this is the first time she shows up in the accompanying Batman Adventures tie-in. This is the second issue of Batman Adventures, not counting annuals that we have covered. We covered issue nine, and now we're hopping forward a few issues to issue 12. This is a fun story. Barely any Batman. Just appears on the splash page in a, you know, oh, Batman's out of town. But there is Batman in it, so it does count. It does count. I decided to take a trip onto eBay to look for some uh, Batman Adventures number 12. We'll play another game, Matt. On the first page, what do you think is the highest asking price? Batman Adventures number 12. Highest? Highest. No, I've seen it at cons as a wall book for like 500 bucks. But this is eBay. So people are even greedier. Absolutely. So 1200. Astoundingly close. 1250. Huh. Uh, we have an 8.5 graded at uh, graded and slabbed, of course, for 669 99. <laughs> nice. nice. Uh, we got an 8.0 at 899.99. Uh, looks like you could just uh, pick up one that's not even bagged or boarded for two fifty one, but that's uh, that's bidding, and we got about a day and a half left. Uh, Seven fifty, four sixty for something pretty worn. Three forty, you can get a dollar comics reprint for ninety nine cents. I still have my copy of this book. For those out there who don't understand why this book is quite this expensive not only is it the first appearance of harley quinn obviously a big deal but these batman adventures books being that they were you know kids books are not books that many collectors hung on to these were books that were bought and given to kids who you know beat the living shit out of them i have to uh, amend my first uh statement at twelve fifty. Uh, there is someone offering a slabbed 9.8 Batman Adventures number 12 for $9,999.99. Yikes. Anyway. That, that's some, some cheddar right there. But yeah, this is a Batgirl story. Babs goes to a party. Babs runs afoul of Harley and Ivy. Babs saves her friend. Babs runs afoul of, we'll say it because, you know, 30-year-old comic, 29-year-old comic, uh, runs afoul of Catwoman alongside Harley and Ivy. And it's hijinks and wackiness ensuing. And if we are to believe uh, the rumors, not altogether dissimilar from at least parts of the Batgirl movie, uh, the idea that Barbara would go out in costume and uh, somehow run into Batman. Well, that is her first appearance. Babs's first appearance. Detective Comics 359 did the same shtick. She's dressed as Batgirl 
going to a party where Bruce Wayne is about to be kidnapped by Killer Moth and Barbara hops in and saves him because he can't act as Batman because he's out in public as Bruce Wayne. So this is riffing on the first appearance of Batgirl. Ah, very good. Interestingly enough, of course, now considerably more famous for the first comic appearance of Harley Quinn, whose mask is miscolored through much of the issue. Not on the cover, interestingly enough, but if you look, she has a red mask. Indeed it is. I did not notice that. Yeah, it's it's so, something fell off. It, it, yeah, it's the mask color. Huh. Uh, but you're right. This is very high jinxy. I don't really understand why Catwoman would go to the trouble of tying poison ivy and Harley up. I mean, it seems like she would just let them do whatever they were gonna do on that first floor while she went and uh, went and you know got the diamond, but who am I to question Catwoman and uh, what is it, Cat Eye Security? Yeah, you know, you got to say that was planted right out of the gate. This issue is put together, I think, a bit better than that issue nine. Plot-wise, most things work a little more smoothly. And the art, the, the costume party is phenomenal with all of the different homages in there. There's one panel that's the cast of the Hernandez Brothers' Love and Rockets, for instance. I won't say that's a deep cut, but that's an interesting inclusion here. Yeah, I think it was just probably a comic that Mike Powerbeck loved, and he decided to work those characters in. But there's a, there's a lot of detail in those, those party scenes with the different characters, you know, the, the Wizard of Oz characters, there's uh, uh, Spock, there's uh, the Tramp. Charlie Chaplin's the tramp. So, so, so wait, you're, you're not a tramp. Yeah. We, we all know the GCPD isn't exactly the brightest bunch of bulbs in the bulb box or something. The bulb, the bulb drawer. Here's one kind of point of contention I had with this story. And as I was reading this, I was thinking about wrestling. WWE and Vince McMahon, uh, even though he is no longer with the company, they have gotten really into in the last couple of years, like these celebrity appearances where a celebrity will come in and, you know, do some, do some spots, do some kind of, you know, pretend to be a wrestler kind of thing. And it's basically sold as, Hey, look at, look at this guy. You know, look at Logan Paul. He's great. He's a, he's a natural wrestler, natural athlete, et cetera. And, you know, they give him some competitive moments in the match. And if you're analyzing this as what should be a real sport in that world, to me, the storytelling is all wrong. Like if you want to put over your wrestlers as being like world-class, you know, the best of the best, you know, a, a chosen elite of the world, some guy like Logan Paul or Bad Bunny shouldn't be able to walk in off the street and be competitive again in this in this imaginary world. So to me, it's a bit strange that Barbara is able to put on, you know, just just this costume and is able to basically put Poison Ivy and Harley Quinn in their place and even Catwoman at the end. Catwoman, she sort of outthinks. It's not like she outfights Selena. And there's a, I mean, there is that great progression of panels of Selena slowly unsheathing each claw shink, one by one. Shink, shink. It, that's a great little bit of art. And it's a, a nice, like, just, yeah, you do not mess with Catwoman. I think of all the books tonight, this is probably the best art. Yes. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get there. No, but but yeah, I I no, I would I would still agree with that. I think Mike Parabek is a, an artist who sadly passed too early and did not get to have the the long and storied career that I wish he had. Every character's voice is right. Harley and Ivy are in character. Selena is the only one who's a little odd because the Batman the animated series Selena never you know had a crew. She was a lone cat burglar. And them being tied up like that, that has a very 66 vibe to it. Oh, it does. It, it looks, it's like she's about to run them all through a trap. Yeah. 
And there's there's a couple of bits in here that are a bit broader than what you would get on Batman the Animated Series. That and when Harley and Batgirl headbutt, you actually get Harley with the, the tweeting birds around her head, which I'm able to take a little more because it's Harley. If that had happened and it had been Catwoman or if it Eesh. had been Penguin, it would have been weird, but it's Harley. So I can take a little heightened reality with Harley. Uh, but I will say Catwoman saying to her goons, okay, next time I'll hold off the cops and you guys can escape. Like that, that was a funny bit. Oh, yes. Oh, that was, yeah. I like that they, they did that. And again, it's a kind of a 66 sort of, vibe. I mean, one of the great lines of 66 is when, you know, I think it's Julie Newmar, Catwoman. She's that, you know, I could, you could join me. And like, and what about Robin? We could just kill him. <laughs> Cats kill birds. Mm-hmm. It is a good example of what you get out of these Batman adventures books. And I love the, the, the three act structure. I love the, the style of the art. It all feels of a piece with Batman, the animated series, even if it isn't as noir but there are a few very non-noir episodes of batman the animated series there are some wackier episodes but those always do have a, a touch of darkness to them man who killed the batman almost got him this was not intended to be anything you know this was intended to just be another issue nobody thought that 29 years later you'd be finding them on ebay for two grand and, you know, if we're t- going to talk about Harley Quinn tonight, she doesn't do a lot here. She, you know, she basically just gets knocked out. And shoots off one of the ears of Barbara's costume. Well, hey, that's something, right? Reading it in retrospect to what we know now, I do not remember Harley ever wielding a baseball bat in Batman the Animated Series. And she does here. And that has now become one of her signature weapons. So, like, oh. That is, again, I don't think it was necessarily inspired by this comic, but it is an interesting little thing that, oh, this might be the first time Harley uses a baseball bat. And it's certainly more in tune with the modern redesign and not the traditional, you know, Harley Quinn costume. Really? The bat. Oh, the bat. Yes. Yeah. I was like, the the art, I was like, wait, she looks like the Harley, the animated series. But no, yes, the bat. Absolutely. And here it's not, you know, the the decorated bat. It's not the black and red. It's just, a, it literally has Louisville Slugger on it. It's, it's just, just a regular bat. ass bat. Yep. But not an ass bat. That's a different thing. No. We got anything else on this one? I do like the bit at the beginning where Babs and Jim are talking and Jim's just like, you know, don't envy Batman. He goes out every uh. night. And there are many men with many guns trying to kill him. I respect him, but I don't envy him. It's a good insight into how Jim Gordon views Batman, especially when talking to his adventure-loving daughter. Yeah, Batman has to be lucky every night. Uh, the goons just got to be lucky once. Yep. But yeah, I think I think that about covers it. Uh, that means it's time to put Batman Adventures number 12 on the big board. We are at 153 stories on our big board. Number one is Batman Year One from Batman Volume One, numbers 404 to 407. Number 30 is No Law and a New Order, the first arc of No Man's Land. Number 60 is Batman the Spirit. Coming in at a 60-69, it's the next arc of No Man's Land, Fear of Faith. Down at number 90 is Injustice, Gods Among Us, Volume 1. Number 120 is Bouncing Baby Boy from JLA, number 65. And all the way down at the bottom at 153 is still the reigning anti-champion, Batman White Knight. Reigning, undisputed, shit book of all time, Batman White Knight. 
Okay. So first thing, Batman Adventures number nine, the little red book, is at 115. This goes higher than that. Oh, yeah. I would absolutely agree. What are you thinking about, let's say, 77, Detective Comics 235, the first Batman? I think there's still a little more meat to that. There's much more emotion, even though it's, I mean, it's a golden age story, but there is a lot of, you know, Bruce sort of feeling like his father is on the case with him, that kind of thing. I think there's, there's more to it. I would say I would probably put it above 82 when in Rome. I was just looking at that. Uh, When in Rome, a trifle. Yes. And this, while a trifle, is an important trifle. Yes, and uh, shorter. Yes. So that puts us in between 77 and 82. That is a nice little sweet spot. I'm thinking new 80. I think Batman Year 100 is another one of those books that has a lot of ideas. So I, I think there's more to it. But the Robin Year One annual is just recycling the first appearance of Robin and adding in a few details. Works for me. Okay, so Batgirl, Day One, the first appearance, comic book appearance of Harley Quinn is our new number 80. Our second story of the night is Batman Harley Quinn. The writer is Paul Dini, pencils by Yvel Guichet, inks by Aaron Saud, colors by Richard and Tanya Hori, letters by Willie Schubert, edited by Jordan B. Gorfinkel and Darren Vincenzo. The cover date is October of 1999. In the heart of the no man's land, Witness the DCU introduction of Harley Quinn. Yeah, that, that's what this is. That, that happened. A lot going on here. I really don't know why you try to tell Harley Quinn's origin story in the middle of No Man's Land. That's a weird fucking decision right there. Someday... And sadly, as Denny O'Neill has passed, we won't be able to get all of these answers. But many of his assistants and the involved people are still kicking around the industry. Someone really needs to write the definitive article, text, something on how No Man's Land worked. No Man's Land and oral history. Yes, because it has to be fascinating. All these books, all the ideas, Probably had a lot to do with, you know, the bat books are big, they're selling. Harley Quinn is popular on the cartoon. Hey, let's, you know, two great tastes that taste great together. Let's put Harley Quinn in no man's land. And while I think in general, some of the stuff we see moving forward with putting Harley in no man's land works when you get towards the end of the series, this is a Big old detour. I mean, it, it was not its own. It wasn't like one of the weekly books. It wasn't in a main bat title. It's a one shot. And I think it fed right into a two part Harley centric story in the core books. But this was let's get the guy who created Harley Quinn and let's get him to redo Harley's origin and history and insert it into the DC universe. And, um, it's really fucking stupid. From the moment Josiah Arkham or uh, Jeremiah, right? that, Jeremiah, that's right. Jeremiah Arkham, like he learns that Harley Quinn has been letting Joker out to you know pursue his therapy or whatever, and he's like, "I'm going to suspend your medical license and I'm going to I'm going to commit you." Like at that point, I was like, "Wow, this is really dumb." I have mentally checked out from this book. How, I don't think he can do that. Yeah, that's that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. Oh, wow. There's a reference. <laughs> I, I use that one myself every now and then. So here it's, we go. It's a it's a good one. It really it is. is. But yeah, I really, and not only that, not only commits her, but puts her in what's seemingly indefinite solitary. I mean, listen, we know Jerry Arkham is an asshole from the last Arkham, but 
somebody is going to learn about this. And we don't get the reason why. I would have liked a line where it was like, he was really pissed that she basically embarrassed him. It's like, no, they don't give any reasoning other than, I mean, to say he's pissed, but I would have liked a little more of Arkham reacting to the fact that one of his doctors has been aiding and abetting the Joker. There should be due process here. It's not enough for just one guy to say, oh, I'm going to I'm going to throw you in the the bottomless pit now. So that's that's just a really just strange thing. And I did not care for all of Harley Quinn's abilities and skill to come from a random poison ivy concoction. That was another weird beat. Yeah, I mean, at least in Mad Love, you know, she was a gymnast. It's it's given a reason and uh, something that came from her. You know, get, yeah, the Ivy thing allowing her to be around Joker Venom. I like that. That's fine to, to be immune to Joker Venom. But yeah, I, I don't know why we're taking away some of Harley's agency I mean, granted, the Harley of Batman, the animated series and these early appearances is a character who's defined by her lack of agency, by her complete fixation on the Joker and her complete willingness to let him walk all over her. I will say this for Denny or Dini, he's dropped the the really toxic note in mad love that was like oh i'm sleeping with my professors to get you know grades and whatever you don't get that kind of vibe in this story so there there is some marginal improvement here she does make a line about that when she's talking to batman but that red is her just being snarky i didn't sleep my way through medical school for nothing but i think that more struck me as her mouthing off at batman than it being a real part of the character. I might retract that comment because I uh, I did not remember that line, but if that, you say it's there, it's there. Uh, that is right when she comes to him after the Joker has tried to blow her up. It's right after he gives her the tracer and she says, I didn't sleep my way through medical school, something, something. But again, that took me more as her you know, intentionally putting on this ditzy air because it's not a third party. It's it's not an omniscient narrator thing. It's her saying it to Batman. The, oh, there we go. I see it now. The parts of this I like the most were where we could see that Harley was an unreliable narrator. I really yes. enjoyed that. That's that's one of my favorite literary gimmicks. And uh, I, I could not help but be uh, taken by it here. When Harley has made this, you know, new hideout for the Joker, she says that he raved. Joker on panel, doable. Eh, it's okay. Yeah, there's a definite unreliable narrator in those flashbacks. Okay, here's one one moment that I'm trying... I, I was going back and forth in my head about this and about just how uncomfortable it is. There is a sequence where Joker and Harley, they're dancing and she's going on about how wonderful it is. And then she, she said, I swooned. And the next thing I knew it was the morning. And Ivy goes, no, he drugged you under her breath. And Harley wakes up in bed dressed in the same thing she was wearing the night before. I'm taking that as the Joker drugged her and just tossed her in bed. I don't get any vibe there that there was any sexual violence. Do you? Once again, because we've read so much Paul Dini, I do not trust him here. So I I believe the worst. It is a weird thing to include. I don't know why the Joker would drug Harley. And it's not really explained here. The thing that makes the most sense to me is that Joker is, we'll say, asexual. And he doesn't. Like, maybe that's that's an embarrassing thing. Uh, he has no interest in quote-unquote performing, so drugging her is the simplest solution. That is exactly where my mind went with it. 
rape is a crime of violence, not a crime of sex. Rape is a crime of about power. And a version of the Joker would theoretically rape someone for power or for the sheer chaos and cruelty of it. Yeah. But Harley would say yes. Harley, there would be nothing Joker would ask Harley to do, this Harley to do, that she wouldn't do. So that means any sort of physical intimacy, the Joker has zero interest in it because he doesn't want anything to do with her. I think it is Deanie's little bit, and again, it's an unreliable, it's a different sort of unreliable narrator thing where the Joker's little video that he gives to Harley as she's in this rocket being shot into space is that, you know, the reason he's getting rid of her is he's developing actual feelings for her and he doesn't want anything to do with that. And I'm not 100% sure if that's true. I'm shocked that Deanie would go there because I don't think the Joker is capable of developing real feelings for anyone. Well, not to psychoanalyze Paul Dini, because, uh, you know, I'm a doctor. And so I, uh, I follow the Goldwater rule. But it seems like Dini would view relationships as what's there to gain, right? What's there, what's there to win and what's there to lose? Like, what do I get out of this relationship. And I think for Joker, the answer is uh, nothing. And it's, it's more fun to blast her into space. It's uh, it's easier to let her fight Batman while we escape. She's a distraction. She's a useful tool, not something for me to actually be involved with. The Dini of 1999 from what we saw in Dark Knight, I would absolutely say that that is a distinct possibility. I'm not going to speak to the man now because who knows, you know, there's growth and things, but the Dini, he admits himself was someone who viewed relationships transactionally. Also the art here. Eh. I, I am probably higher on this art than I am on, uh, on the next story, but yeah, this is not anything special. Yvel Goucher has never done much for me. I mean, I see why they went with him for this book because of all the acrobaticness of it. He draws all sorts of characters who with a lot of movement, a lot of motion, so it works. But the level of hyper-exaggeration is not my thing. Yeah, this is not a uh, particularly good Joker. No. And... The very last page, this monologue that Batman gives is a monologue. It real reads like something somebody wrote, not something someone would ever actually say. Oh, we'll 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 get to talkiness here in a bit. What specifically from Bats uh, has you vexed? Uh, let me bring up the book. Oh, uh, you mean uh, Harley's uh, note to Batman? Well, the note, and but then the very last page, I'm going to bring this up because it just struck me as very writerly. Ah, none of us can rest until the balance yes. is restored, until the Joker, Harley Quinn, and their ilk no longer haunt the city. Are the good people still cling to its ruins? Yes. Yeah. And listen, it's a comic book, heightened reality, yada, yada. But nobody talks like that. Batman doesn't talk like that. I read that and it just, it was like, wah, wah, flop. Yeah, um, that didn't hit my ear as being strange. But um, it's, uh, it's interesting to see, like, I, you know, I'm thinking about uh, I Am Batman and all the moments that hit me as being weird and things that nobody ever says. But yeah, when you, when you hit one of those things, it takes you immediately out of the book. I agree. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, fortunately, it's the last three panels of the comic, but it just, that bugged me. And the Harley Quinn, as the character she is here, and as the character she was created to be, could that character be created that way today? 
I do not think so. The relationship and the dynamics are so toxic. It's this attraction from afar. And yet in that close proximity, it's so unhealthy. It's so icky. I, I, I don't think you could do it now. And perhaps it shouldn't have been done then. The thing that I think about it is it could be done, but it would it would be rooted in that toxicity. It would be more at the forefront of the relationship and commentary on the toxicity versus it being, oh, she's so wacky. And there would there would be more agency. Like, I know he's an asshole, but he's my asshole. I know he's terrible. I know he treats me terribly. But on some level, I enjoy it. I enjoy being treated like dirt. There should be like an on-the-page acknowledgement of that. But this is uh, certainly none of that. No. And... You know, you do a big double-sized origin of Harley Quinn and it's going to draw comparisons to Mad Love. And I have read Mad Love. I know Mad Love. You, sir, are (laughs) no Mad Mad Love. Yes. Um, I absolutely agree. And this is is certainly going to guide where it goes up on the big board. Once again, it's so strange putting this in the midst of no man's land like this is this should be a timeless story the origin of harley quinn this should not be centered in something going on right now in the dc universe and this is another one of these things where i feel like it's a book that's taking from the greatest hits because you've got mad love you have batman and joker fighting in a tunnel of love Again, I've read Dark Knight Returns. I, I've seen this done better. And it's only uh, going to draw a comparison to Dark Knight. Exactly. And this uh, certainly no Dark Knight Returns. And the last thing I want to say, uh, as I'm thinking now about uh, this final page, who said to Alfred that he could wear khakis? It's the no man's land. You, you have to find whatever clothes you can find. Ugh. I'm Standards. Sure. I'm sure, Alfred, the minute that they opened the the world back up, the first thing he did was order himself a new butler's uniform. First thing. Uh, I, In my heart of hearts, I want to believe that he wears nothing but Brooks Brothers. You know, if the news that was released today is true, we will be finding out again very soon. Oh, hey. I, I'm on the, uh, the, the DC press uh, mailer, but of course we, we can't get review copies uh, because I, I don't know what the fucking deal is, but we get their releases. I seen the panel. It doesn't make any sense to me, but I'm happy about it. We've just been wanting somebody to do it. And let's just hope that we get Alfred back because the bat books are lesser for him not being there. That they are. And from one Alabamian to another, Mark Wade, I appreciate you. However crazy, stupid nonsense you did it, I appreciate you. But I think that that might be that. Because we are we are way in the weeds. Oh, we're... And that means it's time to put Batman, Harley Quinn on the big board. All right. Well, Mad Love is in rarefied air. Mad Love is up at 24. We're nowhere near 24 on this thing. No, this is this is a weird thing that I could have lived my entire life not reading. Uh, where do you think about it in regards to The Killing Joke at 65? Oh, The Killing Joke is, is still better. The Killing Joke is, the art is way better. And the core conceit of the killing joke, the one bad day thing is better. Yeah, this this has some really dumb story beats. Um, let's try uh, your your favorite blades at 96. No, we're in we're in the triple digits here. You think? Yeah. All right. Just looking at other joker related things, right above blades is clown at midnight. Clown at midnight is better than this. That's very true. 
trying to see what other jo- okay down at 110 is dark knight a true batman story the dini graphic novel that sort of informs everything we you know see about paul dini's writing after having read it yeah uh paul dini i i hope you've gotten some help i i hope you're happy i hope things are better for you now this did not have as many moments where i'm like this is gross and weird uh so i think it's better than dark knight but i do since we were also talking dini i do not think it is better than 104 night of the penguin or as you prefer to call it why won't paris hilton fuck me that's indeed that's why that's how it is on my list i don't know that was a terrible book i would put almost anything above it there's still a lot of that book that i i like a lot of the the stuff the the paris hilton stuff is gross paris hilton yes absolutely gross but i think deanie writes a good lois i think deanie writes a good penguin i mean i would i would accept a little bit of wiggle room on that no you know what it, it belongs lower than that because I still like Death Cast the Deciding Vote more. Uh, Mad Men Across the Water is more fun. Yes. Faces is certainly weirder. All right. 109. I think this goes above Her Sister's Keeper, that first Catwoman miniseries that is the grimmest of darkest of grimdarks. But I think Digital Justice with its wild monkey astronaut ways... Uh, is better the new 109 we salute you digital justice the final story of the night is 25 big ones this is harley quinn volume 2 number 25 the writers are amanda connor and jimmy palmiotti pencils by chad harden inks by chad harden colors by alex sinclair letters by tom napolitano edited by mark doyle chris conroy and dave wielgush cover date is april 2016 Harley returns to Gotham City to attempt to free her current love, Mason Macabre, from Arkham Asylum, but must, in the end, face down her greatest demon, the Joker. This is the book that firmly cemented in the DC Universe proper that Harley is done with the Joker. And for that, it deserves a degree of credit that it does i was a bit lower on this book for basically everything else i don't like the aesthetics here the accent was fucking tiring but uh i think the story here is fine i also have to say this presents a really good representation of harley and ivy A, there is no way in any universe at this point where you can say Harley and Ivy are just, you know, gal pals. Close friends. Right. No, they are lovers and they are in a fairly well-wrought in this book, ethically non-monogamous or polyamorous relationship. And any attempt to tell a story otherwise, I'm going to kind of think you're homophobic. Or Sean Gordon Murphy. Yeah. Or you can move them towards monogamy if that's your choice, but you have to sort of reckon with the fact that they have really established here. There's a flat out line where Madame Macabre, Mason's mother, when she, when Harley and Mason are embracing, Madame Macabre leans over to Ivy and says, jealous? And I was like, no, I want her to be happy. I'm and happy when she's happy. I'm happy when she's happy. That, is, that compersion is one of the cores of ethical non-monogamy. This is something that felt like Palmiotti and Connor really went out of their way to present this relationship in a thoughtful way, in a way that is not usually represented in fiction. And not that it has anything to do with the story, but might as well point out that they are, they are married. They are a couple. Yes. Yes, they are. So Chad Hardenart didn't do, was it too TNA for you? Is that what? Uh, yes, there were some moments that were too male gazy, especially in the relationship between Ivy and, and Harley. But I think she just doesn't look like Harley to me. Like whatever version of Harley I have in my brain, it's not her. 
I think this is an intermediate stage between the the classic representation of Harley and what we have now. And it just doesn't, it doesn't work for me. It is the next step in an evolution, but it is still infinitely better than the straight out of the new 52 Suicide Squad era Harley Quinn. Look at the cover, Google right now, the cover to Suicide Squad number one, new 52. All right, let me, uh, let me bring that up here. Ah, oh, fuck, I hate it. She's like yeah. a zombie. She looks like a zombie. She is the most male gazy that Harley has ever been. Amazingly male gazy with the uh, the corset that's half open, the non-existent booty shorts. This is the most male gaze that Harley has ever been. This series, the Palmiotti and Connor series, slowly starts putting you know more clothes back on harley and getting her into a costume that is more recognizable that the one we have now and the reasoning that we've gotten for harley's change from those costumes the one given in the harley quinn animated series makes a lot of sense that that was the costume the joker had her in so she won't wear it anymore because that is the joker's vision of her uh suicide squad number one uh, on Amazon, currently going for $3.81. Very affordable. Yeah, I think you're overpaying a little. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm, an, I'm a fan of the classic Suicide Squad and that that New 52 arc, that especially the early issues. Yeah, they were rough. Hey, I'll, I'll say this for Adam Glass. Uh, his Rough Rider series at uh, Aftershock was uh, was some weird fun. Adam Glass has written some good stuff. I just don't think that that series, that series has some problems. That's also the series that turned Amanda Waller from the Amanda Waller that we know to a size zero. Mm, Weird choice. Yeah. She was suddenly like, like the same age as everybody else, late twenties and super skinny. The, The argument that was made, you know, there were people who said, you know, it's, that's bad because, you know, it's a, diff- a character with a different body type. It's bad. Rep- you know, we're stripping away representation. They're like, oh, so it's, over- but, you know, it's bad to represent people that are overweight because that's unhealthy. And, you're, you know, it's like, wait, no, some people are just built that way. It, it was a thing at the time. It was one of the things in the New 52 that was messy. And nothing was good about New 52. Very, very little. We got the Court of Owls. That are a cool concept. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, that seems to be the only thing that has stuck. I'm thinking. I'm thinking. Nothing particularly Duke Thomas. There we go. Yeah. A couple again, and it's really only the bat title. Like most of the other titles, pretty much everything faded. I mean, some people could argue uh, Simon Boz and Jessica Cruz, the new Green Lanterns. But they were from books that were barely rebooted, that were barely touched. The Green Lantern books I with a do least... like Jessica Cruz I as a Green love Lantern. Jessica Cruz. I think she's one of the best Green Lanterns out there. Oh, she's from Justice League. So okay, I guess Jessica Cruz too. Right. She wasn't introduced in Green Lantern. She was introduced in Justice League. So yeah, the Court of Owls, Duke Thomas, and Harper Rowe, and Jessica Cruz. That, that's pretty much it. Of course, Harper Row was quickly forgotten, but whatever, whatever. Okay, but back to the, the comic that we're actually discussing here. You often point out DC's lack of recap pages, which is a problem. But Connor and Palmiotti use the conversation between Harley and Ivy at the beginning of this book to actually be a natural recap of where the book is at this point. Yes, but... Matt, that assumes I want to read 73 conversation balloons uh, on a single page. And uh, I don't. It is very wordy. <sighs> I, I will not deny the wordiness of this book. Uh, there's one writer that can get away with this, and it's uh, Brian Michael Bendis. And it's because he is who he is, and I will grant him that uh, this is too much, especially on the second uh, fucking page of your book. 
it might be something I'm desensitized to. I, I've read a lot of Palmiotti and Connor comics, so I might just not notice it anymore. But you're coming in fresh. I, I think it was only like really, really bad on this second page, which is just not where you want it. There is, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five. There are five panels on the page and each panel is absolutely dominated by a word balloon. Like it's more paragraphs rather than sentences. And, you know, I'm, I'm no comic book writer, but if I was, I'd be like, look, we, you know, we got to keep this short. We got to showcase the art. We got to keep this thing moving and you got to cut this down. Yeah. You know, you always got to be more judicious with your words, but um, eh, they didn't ask me. I think their version of Joker here is an utterly fascinating take on the Joker. He is at times Hannibal Lecter and Svengali, and at times is the worst kind of internet troll or god I'm, I'm losing my words asshole guys who think they should be having having sex but incels thank you thank you the, the, oh, how did i forget yeah again been up for way too too long Look, uh, listeners, you have to understand at this point, we've uh, we've been running this thing for an hour. Matt's exhausted. I'm four fingers in. It's been a terrible day. We're doing our best. And I think we're doing a good job. Yeah. Yeah, we're, 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 we're getting through it. But the Joker is all over the place, but every swap of personality is motivating. Harley does something and the Joker plays off of it. And there's times where he's wheedling and there's times where he's monstrous. And it makes for an interesting take on the Joker. And in the end, Harley beats the shit out of him. But, you know, she doesn't go into the, to the cell with that idea. It is, look, we're going to talk about this. I'm going to be fucking done with you. But then, you know, Joker's not having any of it. So she does what she's got to do. She beats the shit out of him. You got to respect that. Yeah. And the thing is, she tries. She tries to make her peace peacefully. And I mean, you could argue that she should know that there is no way in hell the Joker was going to take this peacefully. But at the same time, she tried. And in the end, I love that moment where she puts the gun to his head and then realizes that now I understand why Batman hasn't killed you all these years. He's not going to give you what you want. And the thing about it is I don't read that as a death wish. I read that as I'm not going to let you bring me down to your level. Exactly. Uh, I'm not going to let you, you know, attain this martyrdom status. You're not going to be more important or better than you are. I, I agree. This is that was a good, good beat. Palmiotti and Connor get Harley. They recrafted Harley into the Harley that we have now. This is the run that changes Harley from the Joker's mall and doormat or the sort of random chaos elf of suicide squad in the new 52 yeah there are other stories in the interim gotham city sirens and such where harley has a little more independence but she's still constantly going back to the joker at that point here they move harley on they give her catharsis they give her forward momentum and that is well worth any of the other stuff that kind of goes on. And yes, I will also, you're right about how male gazy a lot of the Harley stuff is. Joker is weirdly ripped. Oh, he is. He's got like an eight pack. My other complaint, and I mentioned this earlier. I, I know that you want to capture 
the original animated series voice talent, the cadence, the the accent, but this this comic is too much. Let's see if I can find some dialogue here that uh... I will also point out th- at this point the Harley Quinn ongoing is set on Coney Island in Brooklyn, and Harley that is Harley's accent. Harley has that brooklyn accent in general like arlene sorkin accent is that sort of accent and palmiotti is from brooklyn so this isn't necessarily you know a chris claremont terrible phonetic accent that he doesn't really grasp this is someone sort of writing their what they hear themselves and probably overwriting it for that reason just on again on that second page that i hate so much Hey, I love what you're wearing. Where did you find that adorable dress? As usual, I think less is more, right? Just just pick out a couple of words, a couple of phrases. I I don't know. It felt like every time we made it a point in this issue, and not so much in the other two. In this issue, it was, hey. Look at the accent. Harley's different than everybody else. It got very tiresome. I can see where you're coming from. Again, uh, thank you, brother. Y- years of reading. Th- I mean, this run lasted a long ass time. Formative. I absolutely agree. Palmiotti and Connor were on Harley Quinn for what I said. This issue was 2016. So two years before that. So 2014. They were on this from five years, 2014 to probably 2019, maybe 2018. I don't remember exactly when it ran, but again, I read it all as it came out. So for me, I'm just, I, I'm always fascinated to see the opinion of someone who's coming into these fresh, because for me, it's just washing back over. Me. Uh, let's talk a little about, a little bit about Mason here. Random guy. No. So the, the setup of this volume of Harley Quinn is Harley inherits a building out on Coney Island that is full of, you know, wacky characters. And she's technically their landlady. Uh, you see Big Tony. Weird. Okay. Big Tony and his lady Queenie are here. And I think the bottom floor is a wax museum of the macabre owned by Madame Macabre and Mason is her son. She did mention the wax museum that, that ties in makes sense. And he, they also briefly mention it. He got into a bar fight and a guy died during the bar fight. And so he was arrested for manslaughter. And it's somehow connected to the mayor of New York. Mayor's son. Ha. Huh. And the mayor is seriously crooked. And he basically got him when it became too hot to keep him in New York because Harley was causing all the problems. They had him shuttled off to Arkham, which is where we open with this book. Not essential information. Like you were able to read the story without it, but knowing that context, I guess does help. a little. Uh, but Mason also has info on how the mayor is corrupt. Well, I think it was more to do with the fact that the mayor manipulated him and had him wrongly incarcerated, wrongly sent to Arkham, tried to have him killed in prison. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and as he says, he's willing to do his time for the man for manslaughter because he did it. But the mayor went out of his way to, you know, go after the guy who killed his son. Now, this has come up in I Am Gotham. Or excuse me, I am Batman. How far is Gotham from New York? Okay, so if we are to believe the rough geography of Gotham as presented I th- in a few places, New York is New York. New York is where it stands here in you know the real world. Gotham is in New Jersey, but... S- Southerly, I believe I am trying to remember. There was a whole article on NJ.com about where Gotham City actually is. And it's in South Jersey. 
uh, I am looking up this article and hoping that it is not behind the paywall. Hey, it's not behind the paywall. Used to kind of work for those guys. Good for them. It is apparently in or modeled after Bridgeton, which is down in Cumberland County. We're, we're somewhere actually not too wow. New Jersey for a small state has a lot of counties. So I am in my own head trying to remember where Cumberland County is in relation to where I live in Camden County. But yeah, it, it's nearer to me than to New York. And you've been here. I live right outside of Philadelphia. So it, it's more in this, it, it, you know, Delaware, Delaware River, Bay. So it, it's down in South Jersey. And then Metropolis is in Delaware. So Metropolis is further down as well. Central City? A central city is in the Midwest. Because Central and Keystone, the two flash cities, Keystone was a steel town. Keystone was auto manufacturing, and it's right across the bridge from Central. There's a bridge between the two cities. So we're figuring Detroit sort of vibes, although a little more Midwestern. And Coast City, Hal Jordan's city is California. It's, you know, an L.A., maybe more San Diego analog. Uh, I still think Marvel has it best where... We're, ju- we're, we're sticking with real cities. It gets weird when you mix in real cities and fake cities. I, but I, you do you, DC. I mean, again, DC was pulling characters and s- things from all manner of small companies that they ate up over the years. They were created using these fake city names because that's what they did at the time in the golden age. And yeah. But Back to the actual comic that we were discussing, though I, I think we've covered most of what we needed to cover here. Just going back to the the male gaziness, the one panel that I'm like, you could have you could have done a better job with that is page three, and Harley is unbuttoning a shirt or buttoning a shirt rather. Uh, it's just very. It's very sexualized. It's very intimate. And I think for, for really no reason. Even Ivy in the scene says, look, we're not, we're not going to have sex right now. you got more important things to worry about. So I just, this, that was too much for this moment. I agree. I wish the scene had been handled. I wish it had been shot differently, for want of a better term. Because the fact that Harley is undressing in front of Ivy completely oblivious to the fact that there's another person in the room is a signal of their intimacy, but it is presented in a way that is very male gazy. I like the fact that it shows just how intimate these two people are. These are people that are so familiar with each other. They can just get undressed in front of each other and not necessarily blink about it. Yeah, they should be comfortable with each other. It's just that 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 intimacy should not be presented for the horn dog benefit. I will absolutely agree with that as well. But I think that is probably the last word on this book. So uh, that means it's time. But Harley Quinn number twenty five on the big board. All right. So this is better. Th- this is better than Batman Harley Quinn. This does so much more for this character than Batman Harley Quinn did. I will agree with that. Let's let's say Robin Annual number four at 81. Okay, so we're right around where we dropped day one, which is at 80. Bearing your quibbles in mind, I still think the fact that this is the book that gives us the modern incarnation of Harley Quinn that really moves her out of the Joker's orbit for the final time, makes it important. And that, those bits of it are really well written. All right. Legends of the Dark Knight, 65, 68, going sane at 74. Okay, now I think we're in we're in the sweet spot. 
I like going sane more. Oh, you know, I like going sane more, but I'm pardon me trying to think about how much of that is nostalgia. Going sane has some weird issues, as we remember that with the doctor that Bruce meets, who had been a, a victim of sexual violence, who went and hid, and then comes back to Gotham when she's sort of regained her agency, only to be mugged and Batman having to save her. This is almost the counterpoint to that. This is a person reclaiming their agency. So I would I'd put it above that. Doomsday Book at 62. Doomsday Book is so much fun. It's an enjoyable comic. What about Killing Joke at 65? Uh, I'm going to put anything above Killing Joke. Because I think, again, this is a book that is standing against the Killing Joke. This is giving a character the victory that no character was given in The Killing Jug. And you can argue Jim Gordon, but again, as we said with that, there was no reason for Jim Gordon having that. He suddenly comes out of his stupor and is like, no, you got to do it by the book. Here we see every step of the way Harley's standing against the Joker. New 65? Yes, New 65. That does it for this week. Next week, Jason Todd Chebacker, John Wickham comes in with his first request. Stories of Batman and Swamp Thing. Ooh. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June, Conduit of Outdated Joke Names. June, come on. Joshua Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaugh. <laughs> Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Sam Hopper, Christian Smith, and John Wickham for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at BatChatComics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music Audible, and on ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013, and I'm at Will Nevin, and a special good night to the bestest boy who ever lived, Pablo. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.